Hey everyone, welcome back to Trailbreak Radio, the Winter Wildlands Lions podcast. It's Emily and David here, sharing the conversations from our 10th Biennial Grassroots Advocacy Conference this fall. The conference was sponsored by REI, Mighty Arrow Family Foundation, and Outdoor Alliance. Today's episode might be my top favorite. It's sponsored by Alaska Guide Collective. We have Nicole Brown from Outdoor Alliance leading the conversation with the amazing Connor Ryan again, along with the inspiring Caroline Gleick, two talented athletes as well as incredible advocates for climate, conservation, social justice, and more. First of all, if you haven't yet listened to Connor Ryan talking about melting water and expeditioning across generations in episode one, stop right now and start from the beginning. Once you've been there and listened to that, you'll appreciate all that Connor and Caroline have to share here as athletes and environmental advocates, how powerful athlete storytelling can be in terms of moving the needle on things like climate and social justice. There was a time where it was like controversial, you know, to have an athlete who wanted to talk about these things. And was like, oh, like stick to skiing, you know, like that's what you guys do, right? And now I think like within the ski industry, it's becoming much more the norm. If you're passionate about creating change, you are going to be inspired by Connor's and Caroline's strategies to break down the systems that don't work in exchange for systems informed by relationships with the land and oriented to care for everyone. So plug in those headphones and listen to Connor, Caroline, and Nicole's calls to action for the outdoor recreation community while you're shoveling your driveway, walking the dog, picking up poop, or eating a sandwich on a cold ridgeline somewhere. morning everybody. I am super honored to be here both as a recreationist and as part of Outdoor Alliance with Winter Wildlands as part of our coalition. Uh, today's panel is about athlete advocacy. I'm joined by two athletes and two people that I consider colleagues and friends. I'm super excited to get into this conversation about how athletes can support local and national advocacy efforts contribute to advocacy outside of social media and this term that we know as slacktivism and what are the challenges and opportunities of working with brands and big name advocacy orgs. Um, my name is Nicole. Thank you for the introduction, David. Um, I am communications and marketing at Outdoor Alliance. For those of you who do not know us, we are a coalition of 10 activity-specific member organizations, which includes Winter Wildlands, Access Fund, American Whitewater, IMBA, and the American Alpine Club, just to name a few. What we do is we unite the voices of the outdoor recreation community to conserve public lands and ensure that those lands are managed in a way that embraces the human-powered experience. And we also leverage the passion and expertise of those of you in this room and folks like Caroline and Connor to demystify the advocacy process. Caroline asked me to intro both of them <laughs> rather than them oh. introing themselves. True. All right, so Caroline Gleick is a professional ski mountaineer and endurance athlete. She's also a committed activist for both social and environmental issues. I like to think of her as a pint-sized powerhouse, 
both on the ski hill and on Capitol Hill. She is the first woman to have skied all the lines in the shooting gallery in her home, Mountain Range, the Wasatch. She has summited Everest, and she's also testified in front of Congress in support of public lands and climate action. And the House. And the House. <laughs> House and Senate, Congress. Connor, I feel like since the other night, you need no introduction here. You can skip me. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, many of you got to see his film the other night. I met Connor in 2018. I did the math. Uh, just as he was answering the call to be a part of Natives Outdoors, and that call was for Native senders and land defenders. And I think that we can all agree that he embodies the part. Connor is a Lakota skier supported by brands such as Patagonia, Solomon, and Smith Optics. And he was recently named as Outside Magazine's 20 Most Influential People in the Outdoor Industry. Did I get everything? Good. Let's I feel like I've been talking for so long. Thank you, <laughs> okay, so we're gonna drop in. Connor, this first question is for you, but Caroline, also feel free to chime in. So, reciprocity. Connor, after you released Spirit of the Peaks, obviously we've heard the term reciprocity weaved through the film and then also in your address the other evening. I also listened to a podcast that Connor was on right after Spirit of the Peaks came out and you talk about how we can as a collective sustain sustainably interact with nature and your vision for the ski industry. What is the call to action for folks in this room? or as you call it, the radical and rebellious act for those of us who recreate, for land management, and for the outdoor recreation community as a whole? I think really like when you're in a room full of people like this, um, that that call becomes so multifaceted because the, the people in this room are multifaceted. And that that's a thing that, you know, as we made Spirit of the Peaks, like, there were different uh, influences, you know, within our funding and things like that that were like, oh, we want you to have this specific call to action. And, and I think a lot of times that's a great thing to have when we're having these these campaigns, you know, let's say at Winter Wildlands, and we want you to sign this specific thing because we need these signatures on this petition for this issue now, right? Um, but in the reality of, like, the multitudes of who we are and what we're capable of that call to action i think is the ways in which in your work you find that way to really listen to to your heart to, to the way that you're informed by the place and, and how you're able to bring that through into policy and you don't have to forgive me because i've had so many conversations this this weekend but i forget who i was talking to yesterday it was somebody with forest service stuff and they were telling me about how, like, oh, there's times where I just, like, get in and I see that the process doesn't work. And I just want to blow up the process and start over. Um, and to me, I think, like, that's the thing. Uh, is, like, all the places in your life that you can find uh, those spaces to kind of be, for lack of a better word, maybe, like, sort of the death doulas of a system that doesn't work, right? Because so many of you in this room are informed by the relationships that, that you have out there and you're trying to translate them in, into some sort of 
tangible policy and action. And we're all constantly put through these filters of like what we feel and what this system that we did not create but must operate through is telling us that we have to do. Um, and so I think like that's really the thing is like look for any of those opportunities uh, where you get to guide out the exit, you know, uh, of something that doesn't work and, and give birth to processes that make sense and are informed by these ways of thinking and maybe more important than anything, these ways of feeling uh, that, that are taught to us by our experiences out on the land. And the more that we bring that, that feeling uh, of what's sensible, of what's caring, of what reciprocity really feels like into this work that we do, I, I think that's really the magic. Um, and I think the thing that I would end on, you know, is I was, I was having this conversation actually with my therapist a couple weeks ago. And she posed me this question about like, how often do you like let yourself receive the feelings of reciprocity? Um, and I think that's that's really the thing I would say is like find the work that allows you to step into these wild places and feel the gratitude that they have for you, for the unique role that you're playing. And if you can earnestly and honestly feel that as you're out there having an experience on the land, like I think that is a compass that's bigger than any specific po policy or practice call to action that I could share with. Yeah, I like that. I think, um, you know, I, I, as, uh, trying to further my work as an ally and like really listening to indigenous voices, I just, I love the braiding sweetgrass, the Robin Wall Kimmer quote about knowing that the earth loves you, like, or knowing that you love the earth, like that's your first step into activism. But then when the earth, like this feeling that the earth loves you back, that like takes it to the next level. And so all of what you said about reciprocity, and um, I think it can be easy to get in the weeds. And so just remembering, getting, making sure to prioritize time on the land and spending time in the landscapes and knowing that that's not like selfish to do that. Um, I think that that is something that our time outside is something that we all need. And so prioritizing joy and coming from the work from a place of joy. Those are the things I think that I've learned really change. Um, they work for lobbying. Like when you start from a place of emotion and you let your emotions lead. So basically everything that Connor said. <laughs> Both of you have taken on an active role in speaking and advocating for climate action. Where would you say that we are now as a collective in terms of taking action and policy? and change that's way overdue. And what are your challenges and frustrations in that work? And what could we be doing better? On the one hand, I'm really happy to see where we have gotten to with climate action because I've been working as a climate activist for over a decade and to see something like the Inflation Reduction Act get passed, like um, that is going to have a huge impact. We're on track to reduce US emissions 50% by 2030, and that's compared to 2005 levels. And so on the one hand, what I've learned as a climate activist is the real measure of success is how many greenhouse gas emissions that we prevent from being emitted into the atmosphere. So in that sense, I think we've made huge progress. But on the other sense, when I think about 
the Utah elected officials that represent me, I'm a little bit more discouraged because we still have, you know, a lot of these, I guess, over 50% of the House now, the GOP that won't even really talk about climate. And so, like, seeing this increasing polarization and, you know, in the Republican primaries, seeing the candidate who said that it was a hoax and to hear that narrate that narrative repeated on a big stage like that is really damaging to the movement um, because the scientific consensus is really clear. And so there's a lot of work in that sense to break down the polarization and to win the hearts and minds of people in you know our Republican elected officials. So in that sense, I think we have a really overwhelming task ahead. We have a big mountain to climb there. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it, it's a little bit of an interesting question to answer. Like, what are we really doing when it comes to climate? Um, because I think like we're kind of permanently putting solutionary branches on a tree that we know uh, isn't alive anymore, you know? And I, I think that's sort of how our system functions at this time is like, it's not until we have a, a major systems approach of like, what are our collective priorities um, that, that we're gonna really be able to change this. And, and you know, I was just at a conference with people with all kinds of money and you know, titles that are CEOs and CMOs and this and that, and they're talking about regenerative food systems that they want to invest in and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they, they posed a question to me and this Lakota elder that I was speaking on a panel with. Um, and they were like, you know, is this going to make it work? And my thing was like, your food systems are never going to be sustainable as long as you're operating them for money. You know, and I think that's so much of the issue that, that many of us are facing right now is like we have the scientific minds in rooms like this to know what needs to be implemented, right? Um, and, and we have the hearts for it, but we are operating within these frameworks, you know, like we were talking about in the, the ski expansion, the ski resort expansion panel yesterday, um, where it's like, they're like, nobody even knows how to make a permit anymore for the works that we're doing, or this kind of permitting doesn't even exist to have a thing like Bluebird Backcountry. Like, and so I think that's really the issue kind of that we find ourselves in is like, and I think so much of why the folks on, you know, the other side of the political spectrum uh, don't see things the same way as us is because uh, as long as the system isn't oriented to care for everybody, then it's always going to be easy for the person on the other side to point out why this doesn't work for them, right? And as long as like somebody is in the position of having more power or more money than somebody else, we're going to continue to have these systems where these, these swings of power just represent these dynamics of almost like political violence, you know? Like you get one party in power and it's more about retaliating against the last party than it is about making progress. And so... I don't think it's until we can come to collective agreements in our society. Like, we all deserve to have clean water. That should be a first priority. We all deserve to have food. We all deserve. And so I think it, it really takes, like, some of those system level shifts. And I really believe that's one of the most awesome things about being a storyteller um, is, like, with Spirit of the Peaks, like, there's a way in which that's, like, a deeply political film. 
And there's another way in which like, it's not political at all. Um, and, and for me, like one of my favorite signs of when I knew it was done was I showed it to a friend of mine who's like our token Republican at Protect Our Winners, uh, Josh Jesperson, amazing dude, more or less. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I really like, like how you called him out by name. He's like, he's my boy. And we've had many conversations about how different we are politically. But he watched that film and it turned into two and a half hours of conversation about all the things that we agree on. And so I think that's really where so much of it lies. It's like, we don't have a collective common narrative. We don't have a collective common creation story and myth and values within American culture. And until we're able to, to discern what some of those are, uh, it, it's gonna have it's gonna be really hard to have a foundation from which we can grow and and, and have radical actions that reach and affect and, and alleviate these issues for everybody. So yeah, just one thing I wanted to add is like what I've been really working on in like climate narratives and climate storytelling, and I think that this would also translate to work around protecting public lands, is that clean air, clean water, access to the outdoors, those are essential to our well-being as humans. And the more that we can frame the conversation around public health, I think that that's a great place to, 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 to start the conversation and to influence policy. And so bringing it back to those things, I think it's a great starting point and it's a great way to think about our communications. It's like a very good segue into my next question. These are all very big ideas and as individuals, it's very big work. We all need to be working on them as a collective. So when all hope seems to be lost when you're working on things like climate and speaking to Congress, where do you guys draw inspiration from? Is it through getting out and skiing a line or is it something more macro, something more community driven? Connor, I'd love for you to talk about your work with Icon Pass and what you're doing at Winter Park. Totally. Um, I, I think for me, like initially, Especially in the time of like making Spirit of the Peaks when I was first getting into this space where like uh, representation within this space felt like a distant kind of benchmark to me, you know, before being in movies and magazines and any of those things. Um, a lot of that propulsion came from myself, from that feeling of like, wow, it's incredible that I can do this. Um, and and I, I still think like, you know, like I had someone say to me the other day after I spoke in Vermont and they were like, oh, skiing this or that, you need to be speaking full time. And I was like, man, like I couldn't say what I say. I wouldn't know what I know if I wasn't out there doing this. And so it's, it's obviously huge. But also as time goes by, like the more, I don't know, diluted I feel in just being stoked up by my own adventures, you know, like it, it just very quickly becomes... For me, I, I think I quickly realized that like representation was not enough for me. It was never going to be enough for just me to belong. Um, and, and also that in many ways, uh, belonging within the, the ski industry like wasn't really what I was after. Um, I wanted to make change, not just to be accepted or to be welcome to do the things that everybody else was already doing. I wanted to do something different. Um, and, and, and hope that the reasons why I did that uh, would speak to the people who are already in these spaces. Um, and, and so what I really quickly found was that the thing that stoked me up the most and that propelled me the most was to think in reference to my own story of like, damn, okay, so I started really skiing at 21. 
um, and I'm 30 years old and I get to do what I do now. Like, that's a pretty crazy swing of things. And, and as I look at it, like, I'm not that great of an athlete, really. Like, I'm pretty good at what I do. I've had a lot of ability to practice it. Um, but I think there's a lot of people in my community who could be a better skier than I could or who will be more inspired to do great things because of the connection to the land that they have through skiing than I do, right? Like I talked about the other night, like I didn't go to college, but there might be some indigenous kid who's set up, who wants to be a scientist, right? And maybe they're the next big voice in a movement like this. And the one thing they haven't had to have, they haven't been able to have yet is a powder day. And so for me, like, that's really the thing. So I've been able to work with Icon Pass for the past few seasons, um, and we run a scholarship. And we give indigenous folks across the country an Icon Pass, uh, you know, skis from Solomon, uh, boots, bindings, gear from Patagonia, uh, Smith helmet goggles, Hestra gloves, all this stuff to be tip top, ready to go um, and get their lessons and set them up to have a relationship with the mountains. In many cases, their mountains on their homelands uh, for the first time so that hopefully in the generations to come, you know, there's 10, 20, 30, 100 folks like me um, so that, you know, that that bar of representation is no longer what we're trying to clear. Uh, and instead, we, we have the numbers, we have the cultural sway, we have the connections and the relationships to those of you in the rest of the community uh, to, to make real systemic change. One of the things I think that really gets me fired up is when I am asked to be of service. And as an athlete, I think a lot of times that nonprofits, they think that we're really busy and, and that like, I hear this a lot with like protect our winners and they're, well, we don't want to ask athletes too many things. Like we don't want to bring them too many asks, but I think that athletes do have a deeper capacity and we are really trusted storytellers and messengers. But I just know that in my own journey as an activist, like some of the things that have made me the most motivated to take action are when someone just calls me up and asks me to do something. And feeling that I can be of service and contribute to my community and getting the call and hearing from someone's voice rather than an email, like for me, that's a lot more motivating because I get really burnt out looking at my computer all day. It hurts, I'm sure you all can relate. Uh, it hurts my eyes at a certain point. And so when I can hear somebody's voice directly and when they can say like, we'd really love your support on this and here's how you can help. And um, to have those ongoing relationships that are one-on-one, -on -one, that are like someone sees something in you. I feel like that's been a big part of my journey as an activist is like someone at a nonprofit saw that I wanted to help and they sort of gave me a task. They voluntold me. So don't hesitate to voluntell athletes to do stuff. Um, not everybody can show up all the time, and, and there's definitely times that I don't have as much bandwidth, but there are times that I do, and especially when it's urgent, and I feel like it's something we can win. Those are the times that we really wanna show up and lend our voices, and so if you see someone who's, you see leadership potential, 
be that bridge builder, reach out, start that relationship, coach. Like athletes, we need a little bit of coaching in this world. Um, we need help with the, the policy points, the talking points. We need a little bit of training. But we have really good stories. Like we're good at storytelling. We have good photos. And so with a little bit of nudging, I think that you can really help us to get to the next level and to develop our skills and talents as activists. You guys are also really good at passing the mic. You talked about an opportunity that Winter Wellens reached out to you about and you reached out to McKelly Oliver. And I think that that's also really important too, is like you guys as athletes, like, yes, you guys are busy. You are willing to take on the work. Like advocacy is so important, but it's also so important to bring other people into the fold and give them an opportunity. And that just like makes the facet of advocacy like that much more impactful. It gets more and more people involved, which is ultimately like what we need. Um, speaking about working with brands and being big sponsored athletes. Also, I just want to point out, we did not plan to dress alike. I am not a Patagonia sponsored athlete. <laughs> uh, but these two are. Uh, so speaking of working with brands and orgs, whether it's climate change, issues of diversity and equity, mental health, politics, we're seeing a lot more athletes step into these spaces. Caroline, you touched on this a little bit in terms of like what kind of support is needed from both brands and orgs. And how can organizations like the ones in this room get more involved in bringing more people into the conversation, both athletes and like recreationists alike. I think early on in my career, I wanted to make it like really trendy to get involved in this work um, and sandbag people into showing up for public comments and for public meetings because it's not that easy. That stuff is scary. Like one of the first public hearings I spoke at was about regional haze in national parks and the local coal mines in southern Utah bust up all these busloads of families and coal miners and they all had matching shirts and matching signs and we had to like walk through the sea of coal miners. We were clearly not from the fossil fuel industry. And it was just me and Brody at that time. Like, we're the only ones that showed up. Um, I think, like, there's a couple outdoor people, but we were really outnumbered. Like, nobody, we didn't get any applause. We got booed. Um, it was super scary. And so, yeah, trying to keep sandbagging people into showing up, making it seem easy and fun when it's not that easy and it's not that fun. It's stressful and super scary. Um, but no, it's really cool to see this progression because I feel that 10 years ago in my career that there were brands that were like, oh, we're not going to work with Caroline because she's like a political liability. Like we're worried about what she might say. And now I feel like it's really changed and brands are seeking me out. And it's like no longer is getting political, like risque or taboo. It's like expected for athletes and it's expected for brands. And I think like we have to keep pushing the brands to take bigger stands, to work more quickly, to be more nimble, you know, to be able to get out this messaging and get out these asks more quickly. And, um, you know, to really take it to the next level. Like, I would like to see brands doing more endorsement campaigns so that we can actually have good elected officials there to begin with. Um, that would help a lot. So. So things like that, I'm excited to see. And 
I think I don't have like the silver bullet except that we just have to keep it's a bad analogy. I don't have like the the one thing that's going to help but just to keep the pressure on and to keep making it more of an expectation to participate like it shouldn't be something above and beyond like everybody who gets out and loves the outdoors like there should be a component of of giving back. Yeah, I think it's uh it's an interesting thing and I I love being able to share this space with someone like Caroline because I think there's a way that that someone like myself, like I stand on the shoulders of the work that that you've done, like you talk about, and, and we've talked about some of like our kind of juxtapositions in this, where it's like you kind of broke down that that space of like uh, there was a time where it was like controversial, you know, to have an athlete who wanted to talk about these things, and it's like oh, like stick to skiing, you know, like that's what you guys do, right? And now I think like within the ski industry. Uh, it's becoming much more the norm. And I think like, at, at least from where I sit in, in a position of the sport that is very like centered around that country in particular. Um, and, and I think just the ethics that that inspires, like in the crowds I find myself in, if you're an athlete who like doesn't do activism, that's points against you as opposed to like, it used to be a time where it might be points against you to be like, oh, they're just an activist skier, blah, blah, blah. Um, now I think it's pretty standard. And like a lot of the folks that I know who are some of the biggest names in the sport, like look to me on like, oh, okay, like how should we talk about this? How should we address this? And so I think it's, I think it's made a major shift. Um, and, and it also has so far to go. And like for me, uh, it's an interesting thing. Like I think I definitely exist in a space where like, I'm constantly finding the line <laughs> with like what I'm allowed to say. Um, and, and I think like a lot of that comes from like, we've, we've never had like a native American professional skier included in this way. Right. Like we, we exist in a sport that like sells access to stolen land, sells gear in order to access stolen land and the group of people from which those lands were stolen is the one narrative that we've never really included when it comes to what are we gonna tell stories about? What are we gonna make movies about? You know, all these things in this space. And so it's an interesting thing where if nobody uh, comes before you in that space, the, the way that Caroline's gone before me in the, the activism space, uh, anytime you say anything, you're gonna wonder like, is this over the line? Um, and what I really end up leaning on the most uh, is personal relationships. Because it's hard sometimes when you look at something as the entity of like, you know, I, I ski for Solomon, one of the biggest ski brands in the world, belongs to this huge conglomerate of Amher Sports. And I'm like, man, I don't know, there's probably shareholders and all this kind of shit that I don't want to think about. Like, <laughs> what would they think of what I have to say? Like, my my ideas tend to be, like, pretty anti-capitalist. Uh, my ideas tend to be, like, very against the grain of, of, of a lot of the ways that we view things. And then I'm annoying, too. I ask for a ton of resources. Like, what, what other pro skiers? Like, yeah, no, I need 30 skis for all these kids in my program. What are you going to do about it? And I owe so much to the people that I work with at these brands because in almost all of these cases, it's another individual who believes in me, who I've connected heart to heart with, who says, shoot, I don't know if this fits in our budget. I don't know what I can do. I don't know what my boss would know if I actually did this by the books. 
but we're going to find this way to make it happen. Because you and I, we feel something, a shared connection about this. We understand something because of the bond we have through the land. And I can see what you're talking about. I can see what you feel. I can understand why you want to share it. And I believe in these goals of where you're trying to take this, even if I don't understand your approach, even I, I don't understand your means of how to get there. So I'm going to help you do this, even though I'm risking myself a little bit. And it's 100% that, that what I do runs on, is the people who are willing to take those risks themselves because of that, that empathy and that connection and that just like just being humans much more than it is being our roles as professional athletes or you know, chief marketing officers or whatever it might be. So I think it's, it's, it's really all just like born from allowing ourselves to get out of our heads a little bit uh, and, and into our hearts, you know, in, in the space of a, a Zoom call or a boardroom the same way that we would, you know, uh, in, in the space of having a heady conversation on the way up the skin track and just hugging each other and screaming and shit while we're coming down and skiing pow. And so I think it's finding that same rhythm uh, in all the work that we do. I just wanted to add one really quick thing. And that is just like, when we think about what, how, like our goals, like I know there's a lot of smaller nonprofits and then Winter Wildlands and then Outdoor Alliance. And there's these micro campaigns and then there's the national ones. But the more that we could also try to proactively come together to to rally around you know a shared goal like I did a speaking engagement for Senator Tester a few years ago and it was for the public land it was a public land celebration and it was just so rad and refreshing to come together not to put out a fire literally or figuratively not to fight against a threat but to proactively celebrate like what public lands mean and when I think like nonprofits are thinking about their strategy and looking ahead, there's probably some common themes, common challenges that you are up against. And so thinking about the next year or two, like are there things that we could put on the calendar and like proactively come together as a community to celebrate? Because I think that would help build resilience for when there are those bigger threats and there are those negative things that, like that inspires a lot of action too. I would just like to see more action that's based on not a negative messaging, but a positive messaging, because I think that will create more resilience and it will help us get ahead of some of those threats and it will help bring more people in. Yes, awesome. I'm actually going to skip my last question and go into this theme of coming together. Um, so I'm going to end and we'll go into Q&A, but with an anecdote from our CEO at Outdoor Alliance, Adam Kramer. If you know him, you know he's like the king of analogies and anecdotes. But I think this is a really good one that'll resonate with this room. And I'm going to leave it open-ended for you guys to chime in after. Um, but he says, advocacy. Obviously, we've talked about so many different ways to be an advocate and to show up here on this panel today. You guys have done the same thing throughout the weekend. Advocacy, the process is complicated. Let's say you've never been backcountry skiing and you want to go. You don't just show up by yourself. You learn a little bit about it. You get the equipment. You go with a friend, someone who understands avalanche safety and terrain management. When you go with someone with expertise, you go together. And at Outdoor Alliance, that's what we do. We go together. And we don't just go with backcountry skiers. 
We do this as a collective with paddlers, mountain bikers, climbers, hikers, and backpackers, because what we've learned in our work, and I think our work too, as the outdoor recreation community, is that when we speak with one voice and as a collective in favor of a common goal, it is more powerful and more effective and it gets more shit done. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I think I, I think the thing that I would just add to that is just a reminder to all of us as, as individuals of the compromises that it takes to be one voice. Um, you know, I, I think that sometimes we have this attachment, right? Uh, to need to be a part of the solution or a central part of the solution or a leader in creating the solution. And that our attachment to the role that we should play in the future that's coming becomes larger than our attachment to that future actually coming. And that would be the biggest thing I could offer to any of you is like, you know, would you still accept uh, the necessary changes that are coming um, if it meant that indigenous people stepped in and led us there all the way? If it meant that, that our black relatives in this, in this country whose, whose wealth is the basis, uh, whose stolen labor uh, is the wealth that is the basis of our entire economy, right? Uh, for indigenous people, all the land that we make, right, or all the money that we make within the outdoor industry, like that land that we're accessing that comes from somewhere, right? And so I think as we navigate our way forward in this world of solutions, uh, how much are we open to letting those who haven't been able to implement solutions implement them? And is that perhaps the key in why everybody's been trying their best for so long uh, but we haven't gotten where we need to go. Maybe we haven't let the right people try. Maybe that's the missing part of our solution. So I, I would just urge us all to, to, to question uh, how loud does our voice need to be within the chorus uh, that, that leads us where we're going. I agree with all that. And I wanted to touch on another thing, and that is the whole title of this panel and I think that one of the parts of the description was athlete advocacy and going beyond slacktivism. And like slacktivism, I think, I'm not sure how you guys exactly define it, but I think um, that it's this idea that just posting something or sharing something on social media isn't really activism. But I wanted to just take a moment to kind of provide a counterpoint for that because I think that that's one piece of the puzzle that athletes can help and can do really well with is to help communicate these nuanced environmental issues or calls to action on social media. And um, I think some of us really enjoy that work. And I feel often that the word influencer is like tossed around as a way, like I kind of, I don't love the word because I feel like it diminishes the value of what we do. Like social media, posting about this stuff, creating an educational video, like it actually takes a lot of skills that have taken me over a decade to refine. You know, there's the actual video component, the cinematography, setting up the shot. There's the what you actually say and taking like a very complex environmental issue and breaking it down in 30 seconds and trying to get people to act, whether that's through a photo or video, whatever it is, like 
just getting those photos alone, that has taken me a long time to learn how to operate cameras in some of the environments that we're in. And so don't discount the power of slacktivism and don't discount how social media and that can fit into your larger communication strategies. I think it's an important prong in a strategy to create change. And um, as you're thinking about the calls to action, if there's someone from the organization who can create like a one pager, like a social media toolkit that you can send out to athletes, like that really helps us do our job on the other end. And so chat GPT, that can be really helpful. I've used it a lot lately actually to break down a bigger complex environmental issue. Like you have the things you've written that are in your, in more technical language, put them into chat GPT and see what it comes out with to at least give you a starting point. See what it makes for a social media toolkit and share that ask widely because I think at the end of the day, what I want you to leave with is that athletes, like we're trusted storytellers in our communities, there's a much bigger appetite for athletes to take action. So call us up, use us, ask us to do stuff. Not everyone's gonna be able to show up all the time. If it's really urgent and you have you have money and you, and you wanna put money towards it, like pay athletes or pay a videographer to help make a video with a call to action. Cause like, if you want us to drop everything and do something that day, money talks, you know? And we're fighting against well-funded forces that have tons of money going into, into campaigns, utilizing social media influencers. You know, I was learning about how the natural gas industry is paying chefs to talk about about um, you know preferring gas, and so it's like we have these big forces that we're up against. We're the little we're the little guys, but but um, just because we're small doesn't mean we're powerful. So call us up, ask us to do stuff, and we're happy to help. Now let's take a moment to thank our backcountry partners who make this podcast possible. Elevate your mountain adventure with Alaska Guide Collective. Owned by three friends and professional mountain guides with 40-plus years of experience, Alaska Guide Collective connects backcountry enthusiasts with Alaska's best guides. From avalanche courses to private guided trips in backcountry skiing, ice climbing, and more, Alaska Guide Collective is your gateway to unforgettable mountain experiences. Visit alaskaguidecollective.com to connect with a guide and set up your dream trip. Whether you're chasing powder on Turnagain Pass or scaling ice walls in a Klutna Canyon, AGC is your ticket to unparalleled mountain experiences. Get ready to conquer the peaks. Alaska Guide Collective can't wait to get into the mountains with you. Yeah, Q&A, let's go. <laughs> okay, wait, I'm gonna jump in, use executive privilege, because I'm brimming with questions. Um, and I'm going to do the, the extra obnoxious thing of, since it's two questions, I'm going to make one a statement, and then I'll throw you a question. But one thing that, that Connor, you made me think about, um, that we haven't really talked, we talked about mentorship, we've talked about, you know, bringing in different communities, being inclusive, broadening the constituency. One of the things that I keep running into is there's this sort of window of, like, when an athlete's in their prime and performing at their best, they have their biggest voice as far as an advocate, right? And you talked about like, you know, do we really have to, you know, do we defer to the people who are the best to have the strongest voices? And I find that in, in local planning efforts where it's like the, you know, the, the, the guy who is the most extreme snowmobiler who's been everywhere on the forest who knows it is the one who everybody defers to. Like that guy knows what he's talking about. Um, 
one, I'm just, this is my comment. One thing that I think we haven't really talked about and that I think gets forgotten is the, the elders. Um, and, and I think that, you know, okay, so we go through a phase and maybe I'm in this stage where I, I need to be the mentor, but I'm crashing headlong into old age. I'm going to slow down. I can't keep up as much. I can't ski the, the raddest stuff. I mean, that it's not there yet, but it's going to come quickly. <laughs> But I've seen that, I've seen, you know, people who like wrote guidebooks in the 70s, you know, who like started backcountry skiing and who are still like on, you know, fish scale, Nordic gear. And they're just discounted in a lot of the meetings. And it's just like, you know, who are you, old man, old person? Like, you don't know what we're talking about anymore. And so I just, that's a sort of a call to like, you know, let's all listen to our elders a little bit because they may have done things differently, but they still have wisdom. That's one thing. And then kind of related, um, I wanted to just throw you a question, Caroline, about trolls. Cause, uh, and I think it comes from that same impulse. Like, are you really a skier? Like how, if you're not a, you know, if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, if you haven't been on the pinnacle of the Himalaya, you know, 15 times, what do you have to say? You know, what you say doesn't matter. Um, and, and I've seen you grapple with some of the crazy, you know, really mean, cruel stuff that people say. And we grapple with it the same way as an organization where we've had people, you know, they come out pretty personally and attacking and, you know, really way off base for who we are and what we're trying to do. And they're not looking at what we're, they're not really looking at it. They want to vent. They've got their own anger stuff. How do you deal with it? Um, are there ways that collectively we could improve the way that social media is moderated so that, you know, there, like there's, there's some layer of protection where it's like, hey, like stay on track here, be kind, you know. I mean, it's, I know that social media is in a huge transformative moment again and who knows what it, the algorithms are doing, but, but, but how do we deal with that in those, those spaces? Yeah, I wanted to first thank you for bringing up the point about ageism. And um, I think that when we're building our coalitions, we need to think about more like, yes, we need to bring in people of all ages, like youth voices, older voices. Like when we work in more diverse groups, there's a lot of scientific data that show that we have better outcomes. We create better policy. We create better strategies. And so not just ageism, but sexism and um, heightism. Like, I see this one a lot, actually. Like, you're too small. Like, I, I get that all the time. And, um, you know, height is negatively, it's correlated with lower income over your life. And so all these isms, like, we got to really work to disrupt them. And ageism, I mean, I'm battling that, too. Like, I got a comment on social media about how I'm fading into irrelevancy. And that really messed with my head. And it actually led me to make very poor choices in Pakistan. You know, like, I felt a lot of pressure. Like, I'm, go I'm, I'm fading into irrelevancy. Like, I got to perform. Like, I got I to gotta get this together. I have to be, like, on the cutting edge. And, like, you know, I think it, it pushes people to make, and in my career, it's like, those decisions can kill you. You know that as well as I do. And so, so yeah, we have to disrupt that narrative because definitely like, and I actually see this a lot too. Like it bothers me how people talk about aging politicians a little bit because, um, you know, we can do a lot of badass stuff when we're in our eighties and I see my dad's 92 and he's still, he still skied last winter with me and he's starting a company and he's doing some of his best work. And so like, don't discount people because of their age. Um, yeah, 100% we have 
a lot to learn from the older generation. And then going to the second part of your comment about the trolls and stuff like, I think like it still is something that hinders me from using my voice on social media is like, I am terrified of the things that people are gonna say like, I really struggle with it. And um, one of the things I, that I think we could all do as a community to help is like, just to amplify and share things. Like if someone's posting something and we support it, like give it a share, like share it in your, in your Instagram stories or share it on Facebook or however you're using social media, like help amplify that piece of content. Like that's the first piece. Um, and then if you see nasty comments and you can back someone up, like go in the comment section and get in there and like get your gloves in the ring and back them up. Um, and then check in on people, you know, because a lot of times like my work is actually really lonely and it's really isolated. And it's like, I have people I mentor, but we can always use more people that mentor us. Like, you know, even if you are a mentor, you still need a mentor. And, and um, just a simple call, checking in on someone like, you don't even have to ask them about the comment, but just to be like, doing good, yeah? You're doing good. Like, hey, I saw that post, and like, that was really awesome that you did that. Or I saw, like, one of the hardest things I ever did was when I testified to the House Natural Resources Committee about the American Public Lands and Climate, American Public Lands and Waters Climate Solutions Act. And I had to go up against Representative Bishop, and he was so nasty, and, and Representative McClintock, like, they were so nasty to me, like they bullied me. I spent a month of my life writing my testimony and preparing my statement and writing my paper and they were cruel. And I left and I was like bawling. Like I'm not gonna lie, I straight up cried outside the US Capitol. And you know, like to put so much of your heart into something and to have people treat you that way, it is absolutely devastating. Um, so just, you know, knowing like to just even, have someone say like thanks or to recognize or hey you did good like I'm proud of you those words go a really long way when you're like going back to the airport after doing that and you're exhausted and um you know you put your whole heart and soul into something and then to be torn down on a stage like that it was really hard so yeah just to have someone give you a pat on the back or a hug <laughs> goes a long way. Awesome. Um, this question is also for Caroline. So ageism, ageism is a complex issue. And um, it's awesome to hear about your dad and he's 92 and he's doing some of his best work. Um, I think we're all aware in this room that it, uh, a raging debate right now is the idea of age limits for our leaders. You've voiced your frustration with, you know, some of the members of Congress right now. So how do we balance things like age limits so we don't discriminate against uh, leaders in, in our aging population, but at the same time, we sort of prevent people from holding on to power who maybe shouldn't? Do you have any thoughts on that? Can I offer something really quick before we send it to you? Yeah, it's devastating to see, especially for someone who works in policy and trying to get so many meaningful things done. You're just like, but I think on the other end of the spectrum is like, who are the leaders to who are stepping up to take those places and like that's what we need you know we need like a new crop a new generation of you know whether it be people who are recreationists people who care about climate people who really really want to make change and like the political climate for me I think it's less about like focusing on those people whose maybe time is up and like 
whose time is it now? And throwing our support behind those people to take up those spaces. Yeah, I would agree. I think like that age limits is the wrong way maybe to frame it, but more like efficacy. Like, are they still showing up? Are they able to do their job? I know Mitch McConnell has had his freezing moments. I'm not a Mitch McConnell fan. However, I have empathy for him because like being in their position would be horrible. Like I looked at running for the Utah legislature. I thought about running. And then I thought about the amount of speaking and fundraising that I would have to do to win a two-year seat in the Utah state legislature. I would have to raise between one hundred dollars and $150,000, I think, to really have an effect. That would take an entire year of work, traveling around my district, meeting with people, doing fundraisers, doing speaking engagements all the time. Like, that is a really hard job. And like, sometimes when I'm public speaking, I feel like I'm going to freeze. Like, I might have that moment. I could put myself in that in his shoes. Like, I don't know how President Biden does it. Like, looking at his schedule, I mean, it sounds like I would need just a team to manage, like, the pharmaceuticals, like, drugs to keep me going. You know, and I'm 37. Like, I'm not in my 80s. So I have a lot of respect. And um, I think the job would be really hard. Uh, I don't know that I would want to do it until I'm older because... I want to be out in the mountains and I want to ski, really. If I'm going to raise that much money, I want to go on like a really cool expedition or like make a really badass film. That's just where I am right now. I think public service is really important, but I can understand why older people, why younger people don't want to run. Um, it sounds exhausting. And so I guess I don't think it's age limits necessarily. It's like efficacy. Are they doing their job? Are they doing a good, like, are they showing up to the things they need to show up to? And are they staying true on the things that um, they said they did in their campaign? Like, I would say those are the measures of efficacy. Those are the kind of limits and accountability that we need, not about age. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Um, so a couple of thoughts. Caroline, you had mentioned kind of sandbagging athletes into showing up, which I really appreciate. But I think there's something to be said also for tapping into athletes' capacity for type 2 fun. Because a lot of what you talk about and a lot of the the struggle that you share in those moments of being really terrified and having to like cultivate that same energy to say, okay, like this is a moment where it's not fun right now, but the outcome after is, is really joyful. Um, so I think I'd love to hear from both of you on kind of successes that you've had with that uh, or how we can bring other voices into the space and tap into that. And then the second thought is there seems to be this running theme through the keynote that we had last night talking with Carmela today, some of the comments that both of you have made that some of the most powerful and radical acts that we can make in this journey are those of collaboration and humility um, around a lot of the topics that we're talking about. So where have you found maybe some successes in bringing the Joshes into the conversation? Um, and what have you found that hasn't worked? Go with the first one, or with the second part first. Um, I think as far as like, bringing people in it has to be centered in things that are like more sensible if that makes sense and like more practical and that's the thing for me like uh i kind of have this like saying that i like at the moment which is like uh like taking the roof off of the conversation or like you know it's happening in a container like this and we're going to take the lid off where it's like sometimes you have to give people that like uh that space to feel, 
to just like really feel, but to, to be able to have those thoughts that are larger than our day-to-day processes, right? And like the policies that are so close in your face um, in order to reach back to that spot uh, uh, of commonality again, because I think like we get so dug into our identity on either side, this way or the other of like, I feel this way about an issue or I feel that way about an issue. Um, and, and I think that usually just sets us up for like stalemate. Um, and, and so I think for me that that's really the thing of just like trying to find like, where is it that we can work from? And, and for me, like that's been my whole process of getting into this industry, right? Is like, taking this little commonality of like, okay, you and I, we both like to ski. Now I'm going to have a conversation with you about some stuff that you never considered because you've never seen it from my perspective at all. And I think we live in a time right now and, and I'm grateful for it because it provides me opportunities, uh, not just as an individual, but to create justice. But like, we're at a time where we really emphasized like, oh, what are these perspectives of black indigenous people of color um, you know, that, that we haven't been able to let in. Um, but I think it's also really important to take those struggles to a level of class and not just race um, and, and to be able to find some of those commonalities there. Like as Caroline was talking about like the coal mining story, you know what I mean? Like um, people who are in those positions, they, they, they feel that. They feel the immediacy. Like even if they're getting poisoned, they might die of cancer in 20 years from working in that mine, they can see that they're going to die a lot quicker of not being able to pay the bills, right? And so I think it's really about taking it back over and over to like, what are our commonalities and what are the perspectives that we're not seeing? And oftentimes, like a lot of the times that we're a perspective we're not seeing it is working class perspectives on the right as well. And, and, you know, we're really quick to break down, okay, and analyze like, oh, you know, maybe your education, your perspective, these things are different because you came from a reservation or you came from a black neighborhood or whatever it might be. And, and I think we're sometimes quick to not look at the shortcomings and the entirety of this story that, uh, you know, informs people across the way from us. Um, and so I think that's, that's just a major factor in it, um, it is, letting that that space of what we don't know to kind of be a two-way street and, and then allowing that to take us to places in a conversation um that maybe aren't like this is the policy issue exactly this moment um and instead being you know to those simple spaces of like we eat food we drink water we have these common human needs and from there can we work our way out of it because like I don't know, I think of Caroline with the coal mining folks there, like the issues she's championing in that space probably actually are for them. But in order to ever get to the talking about that kind of positionality of it, like you're going to have to navigate through all this commonality first. And so I, I think that that's, that's a huge issue. And I think it, it kind of answers some of the first part as well. I just wanted to add one other thing. And I think like part of the reason that I feel confident to go back country skiing in avalanche terrain is because I've taken training on, um, on safety and I've learned like the decision-making traps and I've learned the red flags. And I think with, um, when you think about training people, athletes, and even citizens on how to become activists, like that there is some training, like 
Um, I've done a lot of different lobby night trainings with nonprofits, and they've really helped to educate me on how to show up, how to craft an effective public statement, whether I'm writing it or I'm delivering it in person. Like, there are strategies for this stuff. And so the more that you can train people and educate them, the better. And I think the same is true, actually, for finding common ground and getting people, um, you know, creating winning language on these issues. Like, there are strategies that are evidence-based. And the more that we can learn those strategies, it's like, it's not a natural skill necessarily. It's something that you practice and refine and hone. And so having trainings where you can address the other sides like we know what people are going to like what the backlash is going to be like you know if you go to a um you probably know like what the the opponent's talking points are and so is there a way that we can get ahead of them and reframe the conversation instead of saying like no climate action doesn't kill jobs instead of saying it that way say it like clean energy creates jobs you know, it's like, if I tell you, there's a, you know, George Lakoff has a book called The Political Mind, and he talks a lot about this, how we frame an issue. And he's like, if I tell you, don't think of a white bear, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? And so instead of trying to break down the other frame, we have to create a new frame and start, like, instead of trying to say, no, that's not true, we have to create a new frame and start with a different kind of messaging. And so this is something that I'm always working on, like in my work as an activist is like, how can I create better winning language and how can we better communicate things? So um, I'd be open if you guys, if you, I know you probably do a lot of this for your job too. So if there's any resources along those lines about like evidence-based communication that can help us find common ground, I would love to hear it. Cause I'm always, I'm always wanting to, to improve. So yeah, I just want to say to we, Caroline and I have done a ton of stuff like lately together and we have a lot of this at Outdoor Alliance and Winter Wildlands like you guys are a part of us and then all of you guys in this room you guys are a part of Winter Wildlands so we have a lot of this language we have a lot of the statistics like the stuff that you guys were here to hear in the room last night like come November news is going to come out that we're like you know we're a trillion dollar industry and that holds a lot of weight with local lawmakers, the places that you live, Washington, D.C., all the decision makers that decide how public lands are managed, issues of climate. So right now is a really good time to come together on those things. When you guys have stuff that you're working on too, comment periods in your local communities, like come to us. We'll also put them out there. We'll send them to people like Connor and Caroline as well. Um, and then we also have this thing on our website called Advocacy 101. Um, everybody in here who works at an organization, you guys wear so many hats. There's never enough time <laughs> to dedicate to these issues that we're working on. But we can all really use each other as a support. And to your question too, we like to say that advocacy Getting involved in it and doing it is also type two fun. I do, yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things you guys both touched on was the power of storytelling um, and advocacy. And to be honest, I don't think that's something that we in the environmental movement always do a great job at because I think we our tendency is to like, oh, if we just present the facts, you know, just present the science, um, people will get it and you know we'll move towards where we need to go. But I think we've seen that that often isn't enough. 
Um, so I'm wondering what advice you all have um, for environmental advocates, environmental groups in this room of like how to become better storytellers. I love that one. Uh, just because in my life, I've got to experience uh, this dichotomy of cultures that I've been able to live under. One of which, uh, you know, I would say is lacking a culture beyond consumerism for the most part and not for the fault of the hearts involved in that culture. You know, I don't mean that as a disrespect to anybody in this room who's like, wait, but I love Christmas, Halloween and Thanksgiving and right. Like, hey, man, I grew up with those two. I get that. I get that. And we're all reaching for the best thing that we have. But the thing about culture is that it is an intergenerational gift. Right. Um, and so on the other hand of my experiences as a Lakota, like our creation story comes with obligations. Right. And we share that story and it exists equally part in equal parts as as a fact in our mind. You know what I mean? Uh, like, yeah, we come from this place. OK. But maybe more important from that than that is, is all of the rules and conditions that come with having a common narrative and what we collectively aspire to. And so somebody was. Who was I talking with yesterday? Tahoe Backcountry Alliance, right? We were talking about uh, the, the, or excuse me, it was the Teton Backcountry Alliance. And he was like, we got enough stoke in the Tetons. We had to take that off our stickers. Like, stoke is not what we have a shortage of, right? And he was like, so how do I get these people who are so stoked to, like, give a shit, you know? And for me, I think it's really funny because, like, coming from one cultural context that I've experienced, like, all we're based on is how to give enough of a, oh, there you are, brother. Um, <laughs> and all we are really focused on, like, within Lakota culture is, like, caring enough so that the seven generations after you can live, right? And there's a great cultural responsibility that's tied into your life at all times in every decision you make about, like, ooh, is this a decision which, a decision which perpetuates life? Or not. And that's the basis of our decision making culturally, really changes the framework through which you see the world. And I think that so many of us can feel our desire for that through these places. You go out and you feel that. And then I know, as someone who also was educated in standard, you know, United States public education, grew up being the only native kid in school, in Boulder, Colorado, all these things around me, like I can see what the other culture is as well and that we literally don't have the language for it. We don't have the ceremony. We don't have the context to like make that very real to ourselves. And so I think that storytelling is that bridge, that way for us to say, okay, like let's put the emphasis on something that we're all feeling out here, but we have lacked the ability or have not celebrated our ability to talk about these things for a long time. And I think when we look at like, what is our most popular media in skiing? 
fire up the helicopter, turn on the Metallica straight to the top of the line. Like, let's demolish this place. Let's shred as hard as we can. Crack some beers after we're shooting shotguns into a bonfire. Like, let's, right? Like, this is all shit that's in real ski movies. I'll pull it up for you, right? How many of us actually feel that way about our ski day? So why are you paying to go see that movie then? You know what I mean? So it's, it's this thing of understanding, like, what are the tools and the mechanisms around us, right? We've got organizations in here that can support the creation of new media, empower people to write new articles, to tell new stories, to celebrate different things. And then at the same time, we're all consumers within this industry. You know, if you like what happens in the 50 Project or Spirit of the Peaks, way better than you like what happens in MSP and TGR and whatever. And, and that's not to knock, like, you can like both. There's some, some space for both. But, like, let's be really intentional about the stories we choose to perpetuate within our sport, what we celebrate. If you're someone who is, all I do is ski in my own backyard, my zone, my hill, this is enough for me for forever, then, like, okay. I feel that way so often. If you were like, you can only ski in Colorado for the rest of your life, boy, I'd still be a skier, let me tell you. You know, like, I don't need the whole world personally. And so like, if that's the story you wanna see about a guy who's really connected to the place in his backyard that he loves the most, then like, let's advocate for those kind of stories over, I gotta fly this helicopter across the world to the spiniest spine in all of Alaska, even though I have no cultural context or environmental context or reason to be here. And then at the end, I'm gonna just slap a POW sticker on this and we're gonna hope it's good enough. Like, no, let's, let's demand more collectively. Let's hold people to the standard that we wanna hold ourselves, especially in the space of storytelling, because it's our common narrative that's gonna determine where we go in the future. And that's always how cultures have operated. And sometimes I think as a culture that is so consumerist, it's easy for us to get removed from the fact of like, we've got the compass in the steering wheel here. It's up to us to determine where we want to go. So I, I'm gonna, I'm the bad guy. This, this could go on, but you guys are amazing. Um, but I'm gonna call it at that. And uh, thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Winter Wildlands Alliance team appreciates all your support and dedication to keeping winter wild. To find more Winter Wildlands Alliance content, such as our stash blog or Backcountry Film Festival, visit our website, winterwildlands.org. To further support our work, if you haven't already, consider becoming a member. You can check out all of our member benefits and join us on our website, too. REI, Outdoor Alliance, and the Mighty Arrow Family Foundation sponsored the Grassroots Advocacy Conference where this conversation came from. And this episode was sponsored by backcountry partner Joe Stock at the Alaska Guide Collective. Thank you to Emily Scott for directing Trailbreak Radio. And thank you to David Page for hosting and Tess Goodwin for producing and editing. Our music is by Rattlesnake Preachers featuring Carrie McClay, Winter Wildlands Alliance's National Snow School founder and director. Check them out on Instagram at Rattlesnake Preachers. Next Friday, tune in for an episode on winter recreation data. We'll unravel the importance of reliable use data, not just for the solitude seekers, but for the land managers, policymakers, and other advocates for wild snowscapes and quiet winter recreation zones. 
how can we leverage new cutting edge tools to make informed decisions?